Welcome to episode four of the GAM Talks podcast. Today we're joined by Mike Biggs, Investment Manager, Emerging Market Fixed Income. Mike discusses why risky assets have done so well this year, explains the credit impulse and how it informs his view, and from a diversification perspective, why it's wise to hold both equities and fixed income. Don't forget to listen to our important legal information at the end of this podcast. I'm joined by Mike Biggs. Mike, welcome. Hello, Neil. Why do you think risky assets have done so well over the course of this year? Yeah, I think there's been a profound change that's taken place. Um, If we go back to September 2018, if you look at what the Fed was forecasting for the long term, they were forecasting growth of around 2%, inflation around 2%, but in the long term, uh, they expected policy rates to be 3%. Now, they've got exactly the same growth in inflation forecasts, but they're expecting policy rates at 2.5%. So this is profound. This is a 50 basis point reduction in your policy rate. Uh, Normally when interest rates fall, risky assets don't do that well because interest rates are coming down because the growth outlook's deteriorated. This is different, right? Interest rates are coming down because they genuinely believe they can have lower interest rates in the long term. Now, when your risk-free interest rate comes down, all of your interest rates have got to come down, and because your cost of capital uh, comes down, your equities have got to go up. So I think you can attribute 10% of the rally in equities this year to that, and 50, 50 basis points in, in, in all credits, you can uh, the rallying that you can attribute to the fall in the neutral rate as well. And what particular indicators do you think you should be looking at to determine the outlook from here for risky assets? So uh, when we're looking at risky assets, we start uh, on the macro side. So we think there are really two questions you've got to ask. The first is, is the U.S. going to go into a recession? And the second one is, is the U.S. going to have an inflation problem? And if you can say no to both of those, I think you should be willing to hold the S&P. Um, now, you use the, the credit impulse uh, in, your, in your view as part of your view can, uh, can you explain what the credit credit impulse is, firstly? So we think what happens is the market tends to uh, associate GDP growth with credit growth. And the market thinks, look, if credit growth is strong, spending growth should be strong. If credit growth is weak, spending growth should be weak. And, and we think this is the wrong way to look at it. This is a stock flow error. Uh, what we think is if you want to know what's going to happen to spending in a particular year, you've got to have a look at what's happening to new borrowing in that year. And consequently, spending growth has got to be a function of the change in new borrowing that takes place in each year. And this change in new borrowing is the credit impulse. Basically, in credit growth terms, it's the change in credit growth. So we think the market looks at credit growth, and they should look at the change in credit growth. And if you look at the change in credit growth, I think this gives you a tremendous insight into where GDP growth is going over time. And how useful and, and and indeed effective have you found that as an economic indicator? So we find it uh, very effective and in a couple of ways. Um, you know, I was saying firstly that uh, people tend to look at credit growth. So if you go back to the US and uh, just after 2009 or Spain 2012, 2013, people were very bearish about the outlook for credit growth. They thought credit growth was going to be negative and stay negative, and as a result, they were very bearish on the outlook for spending. Now, if you look at this through the lens of the credit impulse, if credit growth is negative, but it's rising, 
which it was in, in both of these cases, you've got a positive credit impulse, which is good for spending. So in both these cases, everyone was bearish. Credit growth was negative, but it went up. You had a positive credit impulse. Spending was stronger than expected, right? So you could beat the consensus on the GDP growth forecast. And because you had this positive surprise, you could also uh, beat the consensus on the asset price forecast because risky assets rallied when this happened. Now, it's not just a bullish story. It works in the other direction as well. So since 2010, uh, credit growth in China, well, certainly 2010 to 2015, credit growth in China was in a steady downward trend. And because it was in a downward trend, every year GDP growth in China uh, used to disappoint. Every year the IMF used to revise down its forecast outlook for China. And you saw it in asset prices and commodities. During those years, commodity prices were under pressure. And as a result, all the, the currencies for countries that were exporting commodities were under pressure as well. Now, I understand from uh, your kind of growth expectations, your predictions, why you would uh, you would want to hold equities. Can, can you explain why you're also suggesting that people should hold uh, US treasuries at the same time? I mean, just to start with that, that equity view, if we take a credit impulse view on the US, we don't think it's easy that the US goes into recession Yeah, So we're saying you've got to look at the change of new borrowing. So if you want to have a recession in the US, new borrowing's got to fall. And what's happened uh, over the last years is new borrowing has gone up, but it's still at a very, very low level to hist- relative to history. And because the starting level of new borrowing is low, I think it's very unlikely it falls. And if it's very unlikely that it falls, uh, it's unlikely you go into recession. With that, what normally triggers that fall in new borrowing at the end of a business cycle, is that the Fed hikes interest rates once or twice too much. Now, the Fed at the moment is being extremely dovish. So it doesn't look like you're going to have that excessive hiking that could cause new borrowing to fall, even if it's at a low level. Now, you take that. If you're not going to have a recession in the U.S., then you're going to find the ISM on average is about 52.53, and the correlation between S&P returns and the ISM has been exceptional over the last 20 years. So if you don't think the U.S. is going to go into recession, you want to hold equities. Now, as you as you ask, look, why then would you be willing to hold bonds? I think the most profound development on a sort of 30-year horizon in markets has been the correlation between equities and bonds. So if you go from about 1965 to the late 90s, equity and bond returns were positively correlated. But since the late 90s to now, equities and bonds are negatively correlated. Now, this is a big impact on your portfolio. If you're holding 50-50 equities and bonds, when they're positively correlated, the volatility of your entire portfolio is very, very high. Okay. However, when they're negatively correlated, the, the volatility of your portfolio is dramatically reduced. So now what you do is you hold the equities and then you hold the bonds. And in those times when you get the negative GDP growth surprises, the bonds rally and they protect uh, the losses in your portfolio. So if you look, for example, at Q4 last year, equities sold off. But if you're holding 50-50 equities and bonds, you won't hurt that much because bonds rallied uh, like mad. So at the moment, Bonds are an excellent hedge for your equity holdings. So it's the classic diversification argument, really. It's the classic diversification argument, but the diversification argument only holds, this bond equities diversification argument 
only holds when the correlation between bond and equity returns is negative. Mm-hmm. If they're positive, clearly it's not a diversification at all, right? So what causes that correlation to be negative now when it used to be positive? And I think that's inflation. When inflation was high and when central banks were trying to fight inflation and trying to bring it down, then naturally this correlation is positive. Inflation goes up, so they hike rates and your bonds sell off. And because they've hiked rates, economic growth weakens and your equity sell off. Then inflation starts to come down and you cut rates and your bond rally, growth picks up and your equities rally as well, and they both do well. So you get this positive correlation. Now, since the late 90s, right, the big deal's not been inflation, it's been growth. So what happens now is every time you get a negative growth shock, your equities do badly, but the central banks cut rates, and when they cut rates, the bonds do well, and the one offsets the other. So it lowers the volatility of your entire portfolio. And because it lowers the the volatility, because they're such a good hedge to each other, you should be willing to accept lower premia now than you used to in the past. And I think the mistake a lot of people make is they they look at asset price valuations over the whole 50, 60-year period. And they say, look, equities look expensive now relative to history, or bonds look expensive relative to history. And they might be, but if you're not taking into account this change in correlation – uh, then your comments on valuation I don't think are meaningful. Mm-hmm. And do you see the, the, the present status quo in, in correlations persisting or is there something that would that would change your view? So I think this is going to be the very interesting question for the next five to ten years and this is the big asset allocation view we have to take. So at this stage, I see no sign of inflation rising. So for this correlation to go back to being positive again, I think inflation's got to increase and central banks have to be worried about it. Now, at this stage, we see no sign of, of inflation rising. Um, but there's an interesting development, which I think means we should be worried in a medium-term horizon. So what's happened in the U.S. at the moment is they're doing a big fiscal stimulus. The budget deficit is widening, even as unemployment is low and falling, Right? And that's not happened since the late 60s. So this happened in the late 60s under Lyndon Johnson. And what you saw then was inflation had been moving sideways at 2% and suddenly it moved up to 6%. And this was not the oil price shocks. Those happened later. This stimulating in the face of low unemployment caused higher inflation and a really material bond sell-off. Now, we're stimulating now. We're not seeing any signs of inflation. And so I think we've got to stay being very happy holding the equities and the bonds. But if we see signs that this inflation is starting to rise in the future, this can give rise to both the sell-off in the equities and the bonds. And so at that environment, we've got to pare back risk dramatically. This will have uh, this will have significant impacts on your asset allocation decision. Could there also be some some major exogenous market shock that, that kind of shakes up the view? I, I guess you know, it's, it's an unknown at this point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, where I started here is I said, look, I think if you don't think the U.S. is going to go into recession and you don't think U.S. inflation is going to rise meaningfully, then uh, you should be happy holding the S&P. And yeah, we were talking about deficits. We're saying this caused inflation to rise in the past, but we see no evidence of it at the moment, and so we think you should be happy to hold the S&P. Now this gets back to what happens if we get a recession. 
Now, I think most of the time recessions in the U.S. happen because new borrowing gets too high, the Fed hikes too much, new borrowing collapses, and then you get the recession. And I think that's what's happened for most of the time since the 60s. Uh, but we always have to be open to the possibility that the recession comes from a different source. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, the obvious possibility seems to be trade war, geopolitical risk, that policy making. Uh, become so aggressive uh, and so nationalistic that it has a negative impact on on economic growth. People become very concerned about the economic outlook. New borrowing falls, even though the starting level is not very high, credit impulse goes negative, US goes into recession. And in that environment, equities uh, will do poorly, even if everything everything else I'm saying is correct. Now, there's been a, oh, there is constantly a lot of talk about the, the the whole concept of market cycles, and some people say, "Oh, Michael, market cycles are getting ever shorter." Um, is that the case, or or is are people just looking back with kind of rose tinted specs and and saying, "Oh, everything was great back then"? Yeah, it's it's interesting uh, when you look at it. We're in the longest U.S. expansion on record, and depending on how you measure it, arguably in the longest U.S. equity bull run on, on record. And, and throughout this decade, people have spoken about about shorter cycles. Uh, so it, it might just be that things always feel more tricky now than uh, they've been in the past. We just don't see any evidence to support that view. I mean, there was a great piece written at the start of this rally where someone spoke uh, about... Uh, of of angry bears and timid bulls, you know. Uh, the bears were furious that asset prices were going up and the bulls just didn't have the courage to believe in it and, and really buy into it. And I think that's continued to go on uh, for, for 10 years. Mm. Uh, and one area, obviously, in which you specialise is emerging market debt. Um, what's the global macro environment right now looking like for, for EM and specifically for EM debt? We've got to start from a top-down macro perspective when you look at EM local because one of the critical variables you've got to have a look at is what's happening to the US dollar. So I've said the US new borrowing levels are not uh, high enough, I think, to make a recession likely. At the same time, as new borrowings moving sideways, I think US growth should slow. So let's say U.S. growth slows to around 2 or just below 2%. That's an environment where U.S. bond yields shouldn't go up too much. But U.S. growth of 2% is perfectly adequate for holding risky assets. Now, when you go to the dollar, the question is, what's happening in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world? So when U.S. grows strongly relative to the rest of the world, like it has done arguably for the last year and a half, that's usually an environment of dollar strength. And when the rest of the world recovers relative to the U.S., that's an environment of dollar weakness. In this case, the question becomes, how's the U.S. doing against a country like China, for example? Now, the U.S. is slowing to 2%. China this year has stimulated credit. New borrowings picked up. The credit impulse has been positive, but you haven't seen great growth numbers out of China. And the question is, what's going on here? And one narrative is, look, the stimulus is no longer effective. Policymakers can no longer boost growth in China. I don't think that's the correct view at all. I think what's happened is you've had a stimulus on the one hand that's been a tailwind to growth in China, but against that, 
you've had the headwind of the trade wars. I mean, these things have had significant impact. If you look at Chinese exports to Europe versus the US, you know, domestic demand growth is far stronger in the US than it is in Europe. But Chinese exports to Europe have been growing at 5% and the exports to the US have been growing at minus 15%. Now, we think we're getting to a stage where the trade war narrative could improve. In the event that uh, Trump would like to get to a phase one deal and things improve in the run-up to the election uh, next year, then what I think is the tailwind from the stimulus in China remains in place, but the headwind from the trade wars uh, eases. And as that happens, I think Chinese growth strengthens. And when Chinese growth strengthens relative to the US, that's an environment to which the dollar moves sideways to weaker. And when the dollar weakens, EMFX rallies, almost without exception. The question then becomes, should you bet on this? I mean, given uncertainties, firstly, around what Trump's going to do with the trade war, and secondly, how China will respond. And we would say, yes, you should bet on it now. And the reason for this is the EM fundamentals. So in the near term, everything about EM is driven by what happens to the dollar. But how much EM rallies when the dollar weakens or how much EM sells off when the dollar strengthens is very much a function of EM fundamentals. And the very important fundamental here is what's happening to the current account. Now, if you look at a chart of the current account in EM over the last 25 years against EMFX, it's really the history of EMFX in a chart. You know, EM was running a big deficit in the late 90s and you had the Asia crisis. Mm -hmm. EM was running a big surplus 2004 to 2007, and you had the big EMFX rally. Big deficit again in 2013, and you had the taper tantrum. Right? When EM ran a surplus in 16 and 17, EMFX did, did really well. And now here in 2019, EM has gone back into a current account surplus. And what that means is EM very, very well placed to rally strongly if the dollar weakens, and perhaps some of the downside risks are reduced if the dollar strengthens. Now, we're not in the perfect environment for EM yet. We've got the solid balance of payments, uh, but we don't have a rebound in growth yet. When we look at the credit impulse in EMX China, it has perhaps stabilized, starting to some show some signs of increase. Now, I think if we get the rally in China, commodity prices up, I think that EM credit cycle will turn around, Credit impulse will pick up, EM growth will strengthen, and that's when one wants to be really aggressively positioned in favour of EM local currency debt. Mm-hmm. And that, that in, the, in your view, that makes it more of a case for local currency debt as opposed to hard currency. Absolutely. So if we look at the fixed interest asset classes, uh, the dollar, uh, the the US dollar asset classes tend to be driven by what's happening in treasuries and what's happening in global growth. EM local is driven by what happens to the dollar and what happens to global growth. So if US growth is fine at two and global growth starts to pick up, what you'd expect is US Treasury yields probably go up a little bit and the dollar moves sideways to weaker. Now, if US Treasury yields go up, that's a headwind for all dollar fixed income asset classes. But if the dollar weakens, that's a tailwind for EM local. And in that environment, EM local is the asset class most likely to benefit. Obviously, as part of looking at EM, uh, you look at individual country opportunities. Which, which countries look interesting to you right now? We look at 
countries through different lenses, right? So we look at idiosyncratic cases, countries where we think the macro fundamentals are such that they can rally uh, despite what's happening on the world or independently of what's happening on the world as a whole. Uh, so our independent case here is, is Turkey at the moment. Turkey absolutely collapsed in 2018. And at that time, they had a massive adjustment in the current account, massive collapse in credit growth. Now credit growth is low and rising. So you have this positive credit impulse in a world where you've got a current account surplus and very high interest rates. So for idiosyncratic reasons, we think Turkey could rally a lot. Uh, the next one. If the global environment is fine, we've got the good EM balance of payments, but we don't really have the growth strength, we don't really have the growth rebound in EM yet, then you might look at countries that can benefit from modest growth, no big downside, but modest growth uh, with very sound fundamentals and valuations. And in that we would include uh, countries like Russia and Mexico. They've got big current account surpluses, Growth is, is weak in, in both cases, but even if growth stays weak, they don't have a current account deficit they need to, to finance, so there's no reason why their currencies should weaken. And if growth stays weak, interest rates will come down, and obviously as interest rates come down, bond prices go up. Yep. Now, if we see the growth turning around, that's when we've got to be more aggressively positioned and try and invest those in those countries that would benefit from an upturn in the global growth cycle. And those are traditionally countries like Brazil or Indonesia or South Africa. Uh, uh, you mentioned Turkey initially. Uh, d does the, the geopolitical situation that always surrounds it become too much and d does that scare you off from time to time? I mean, that's, ex that's exactly the right question. I mean, it's the geopolitical and the domestic political situations in Turkey, neither of which are great. So the macro fundamentals in Turkey are, are such that if you didn't have the geopolitical risk, you'd want to be 10% overweight Turkey, in, mm -hmm. in my view. Uh, but there are no set of macro fundamentals that can't be ruined by poor governance. Now, as a, as a, um, with your economist hat on, um, how, how much... Do you want to get that your predictions right and how much do you kind of revisit them in the future and, and, and see how well you did, if you like? So, uh, firstly, we do the forecasts. We would like to get them right and we revisit them all the time. What we try and do when we make our forecasts is we try and determine what will tell us that we're wrong or what will tell us that we're on the right track. Because it's very easy when the when the forecast's going against you to say, oh, let's just wait one more month, let's just wait one more month uh, and, and see if things turn out in the way we're anticipating. But if you can draw some sort of hard intellectual stop losses where you decide, look, if this happens, I've got to accept this view is not right yeah. and I've got to uh, reduce my positioning accordingly, I, I think that's a very safe way, it's a better way to, to be because we're going to get a lot of things wrong. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of do we want to get things right we absolutely want to get things right but uh, you can also I think do a lot of good for yourself is accepting you're wrong before it's really been you know you've got to the situation where you yeah. can no longer deny that you know yeah. and the yeah. market has already responded so yeah. if we're going to be wrong if we can if we can see that early then that's not that costly yeah and as you say, a kind of intellectual stop loss at that point mm, is, yeah. is uh, I think, a good way to go about it. Mike, thank you very much. Pleasure.
For more of our insights, please visit our website, gam.com. Important legal information. The information in this podcast is given for information purposes only and does not qualify as investment advice. Opinions and assessments contained in this podcast may change and reflect the point of view of GAM in the current economic environment. No liability shall be accepted for the accuracy and completeness of the information. The mentioned financial instruments are provided for illustrative purposes only and shall not be considered as direct offering, investment recommendation or investment advice. Past performance is no indicator of current or future trends.